This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Well, today we're starting a new series, a series called You Asked For It, uh, where we're going to be taking a biblical look at questions uh, from people right here in our congregation. And if you haven't had a chance yet to submit a question, you'd like to do that, you can do that right out there in the lobby today or anytime by emailing questions at myabc.life. Now, the question that we receive that I want us to take a look at this morning is this, how can I be big to God as a kid? Interesting, isn't it? How can I be big to God as a kid? Uh, As I was thinking about this question, I I thought I can totally see my son Judah asking this question, right? Judah's five years old, and in his mind, big means better, significant important, or maybe best yet, uh, valuable, right? Valuable. If I offered him uh, two different sizes of ice cream, he would pick the bigger one, right? Every time, and so would I. Uh, you know, if, if you've ever tried to k- teach kids about money, the fact that the dime is worth more than the nickel, that always seems to be a tricky one, doesn't it? It does, because kids oftentimes equate bigger with more valuable. So when I saw this card, I thought, this is a great question. This is a great question. We're going to slightly rephrase it to asking, how can I be valuable to God? And friends, this question of being valuable to God, it really only makes sense with God in the equation. Uh, If you were to think about this question from an atheistic mindset, It just doesn't really make much sense because in a mindset where there is no God, you and everyone else is just simply a result of a cosmic accident. And therefore, you don't have have value. Uh, You can't be valuable if there's no purpose, no point, no reason, nothing, right? Nothing, whether whether you're, you know, a person or part of a planet or, you know, anything else, nothing is important in that mindset. You just are. And yet something within us doesn't agree with that idea. And we don't seem to accept that, that we or, or others don't matter. Uh, this isn't something that just kids believe. You know, we all have this innate idea about this. Um, if you think about mo- the millennial generation, which I fall into, surprise, surprise, um, you know, we're, we're always talking about this, right? We're talking about wanting to make an impact right, or to work for a company that has purpose. Those ideas are asking the same question. How can I be valuable here? How can I add something of value here? Again, it only makes sense with God in the equation. If you think about the baby boomer generation, uh, they like to talk about the same idea. As somebody else pointed out to me, they just call it a different name. They talk about leaving a legacy, right, leaving a legacy. It's the same idea of wanting to leave behind something of value. And of course, you know, this is something that someone who is a senior citizen can struggle with at times, wondering whether or not they have value. 
uh, or something of, of value to offer, or even if they'll ha ever have the opportunity to offer it. And our question this morning of how can I be valuable to God falls right in line with the rest of these. And so in large and small situations, uh, people young and old, whether you're a senior citizen or a senior in high school, <laughs> we're asking this question. And each and every one of us has a certain way of determining the answer to it. And so this morning, I want us to take a look at one insight on this question and then offer a clear answer to it. One insight and a clear answer. So we're going to be looking at this question from a moment in Jesus' time on earth that I think captures this beautifully. It's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, which is a, it's a documented account of Jesus' life based on the testimony of different eyewitnesses. And it addresses this question of someone's value in this particular scene. And we're going to look at it from Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him as Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. All right, now pause here. Picture this scene with me. There's a large crowd of people that Jesus has been teaching. Maybe, maybe a thousand people are gathered around to listen. And a group of people who have a, a certain reputation uh, gather around to, to listen. In fact, they come in. The, uh, their title is called the Tax Collectors and Sinners. Uh, that's a title here that Luke, the writer, is not giving them. This is a title that they, they already had in that day and, and time. And, and so they come in, and they start sitting in all the good seats, right? That's the drawing near here. They're sitting in all the good seats. All right, now in church world, where are all the good seats? They're in the back. That's right. They're on the aisles, you know, anywhere where you can make a quick exit, right? That's where we like to sit. Well, in the ancient times, the good seats, you know, the same as everywhere else outside our world, they were all down front, right? There's no sound system, so even in church, the good seats were right here. I noticed nobody sat in any of these ones, just, you know, saying that they're open, just for the record. But nobody sat there, right? You know, well, anyways, these people are coming in, and they're taking all the good seats. And so these people are drawing near who have a reputation. And to be clear, by the way, these are people you would not want your kids to be hanging out with. They would have been traitors to their country, thieves, promiscuous, not a very nice group of people. And so they're coming in, and they're sitting in all the good seats, and the Pharisees and, and scribes, who were the religious and, uh, and uh, uh, political leaders of their community, they're there too. And so this is oil and water mixing together. And see, they begin to grumble. They complain because they see this, that Jesus is beginning to mix with these people. Now, no, they aren't asking the question of why is Jesus hanging out with these people. Maybe that should be their question, but they aren't interested in asking, just complaining. Because in their eyes, this guy who is supposedly representing God is receiving and valuing people that are ruining their country, their town, their family, their whatever. These people were having a negative impact, and Jesus is getting lunch with them. So they complain. And in verse 3, it says this. So he, Jesus, 
told them this parable. Now, the phrase here is this parable, it's singular, uh, because it's, it, although it's three stories, it's all answering one question. The one question that they should have been asking, why? Why is he hanging out with these people? And so Jesus tells a story about a sheep, a coin, and a son. And each of these stories, they follow the same pattern. Something is lost. A search is made. The item is recovered. And rejoicing follows. And this morning, I want us to take a, a specific look at the second story here, the lost coin. And so Jesus, he goes from talking about a man in the first story to then saying in verse 8 in the second story, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. All right, now I don't know about you, but I have never turned my house upside down to find uh, a dime or a nickel, maybe a quarter, um, but not a dime or a nickel. So what kind of silver coin is this here? Well, the word here is a drachma, uh, which means that it was worth 10 days' wages. So imagine if your paycheck on its way to the bank, went missing. You, that would prompt an intense search, right? Well, specifically here, because it's, it's a woman in this context, this is probably part of her dowry, her dowry. Maybe it's a, a wedding gift. It may have been in a, you know, a headdress kind of a thing or, or whatnot, but, but it would have been a dowry. Uh, this is the modern day um, kind of uh, retirement account in the form of an engagement ring right? Some of you have, you know, that retirement account size ring, don't you? you know, and, um, now imagine, now imagine if that went missing. That would prompt an intense search, right? I mean, you'd be flipping on lights, you're checking high and low, you're, you know, you're turning out the couch cushions, you're checking the vacuum cleaner bag, right? Where did this thing go off to? That's what's happening here. A diligent search for something very, very valuable. And so she searches until she finds it. And this diligent search is why in verse 9, then it makes sense, where it says, And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And then Jesus interprets it here. He says, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now remember, why is Jesus telling this parable? He's answering a grumble of why are you, Jesus, hanging out with these good-for-nothing people who are unkind, traitors, and so forth. These stories are meant to answer that question of why. And Jesus' answer is abundantly clear. Because these people are important to God. And what is important to God is important to me. These people are valuable, and what's valuable to God is important and valuable to me. That's why Jesus bothers with them. That's why. And that's why he bothers with any of us. See, that's the insight that we need into our question of how can I be valuable to God? It's this. You are. You are. You are more valuable to God than you can imagine. We are more valuable to God 
than we can imagine. That's one of the key truths that this story points out. Think about it. Why does the woman search diligently until she finds it? Why is she celebrating when she does? Because what she lost was valuable to her to begin with. That's why there's this causing for, cause for rejoicing, even in heaven, even over just one sinner repenting, because people are so valuable to God. One scholar, G.K. G. Campbell Morgan, said about this parable that it unveils the heart of the Father. The divine love is the theme throughout the parables. Love goes to the wilderness. Love continues to seek. Love welcomes home. Gang, God loves you. You're his coin of great value. And you probably don't hear that enough. But that's true. It's true. But have you ever wondered why? Why? Am I so valuable to God? Why is that person so valuable to God? Why? It's a fair question. He doesn't need me. I'm not useful to him. I'm not likable with my sin to a holy God. So why am I so incredibly valuable? Have you ever wondered that? A couple weeks back, I was um, sitting next to a commercial real estate appraiser at this event, uh, we were in uh, downtown Milwaukee, and we were sitting there at this uh, large banquet hall. And uh, I thought, well, I'll just kind of give this guy a little test just to keep things entertaining here. And so I asked him, you know, hey, how much do you think that this building is worth? And off the top of his head, he goes, oh, $20 million. Oh, okay, $20 million. But, but he, then he goes, well, it depends, though. It depends, which every real estate appraiser always says, by the way. It, it depends. And it depends on what model you're using, he went on to say, you know, to determine a building's value. You know, is it for insurance? There's a model for that. Is it taxes? Is it a sale, etc.? And when you think about the story here, that's what's going on. Um, the question of why am I valuable to God is, is is, is in view here. The, the people in this passage, they had a model for determining why someone was valuable. It was a model that was built, though, on performance. The Pharisees and the scribes, they were giving themselves a passing grade. Very convenient, right? They were giving themselves a passing grade, and they saw the tax collectors and sinners as failing. And if we were honest, we have a model, too. We have a model for determining value, don't we? And situation by situation, person by person, we are constantly appraising value, usually based on one of two things. We are either using uh, the value system of how useful something is, how it performs, or how much we like it, we enjoy it, we want it. One or both of those things is how we usually determine value. It's our usual model. So when we ask the question of why am I valuable to God, we feel the answer usually based on the same kind of appraisal. We think about our performance and if we feel liked. And so if life is like, you know, hashtag blessed, right, and, and we've been really good, 
we feel very valuable, don't we? But if we feel forgotten and sinful, we question our value. In preparation for this morning's message, I started reading a book, The Search for Significance, by Robert McGee. And in the book, he uh, asks you to write down your definition of what makes you significant, what makes you valuable, right? Or, um, what, you know, how do you define your self-worth? And I'm wondering, if you were writing down that definition, I'm curious, what would you write down? What would you say? Because I'll confess to you, I was sitting there in Smith Brothers Coffee Shop, uh, staring at those lines, and everything that was coming into my head were about things that I do, ways I'm useful, reasons why I'm liked, right? I'm productive, I'm kind, I'm whatever, right? I began to realize, usually I only remind myself that I am valuable to God when I feel messed up or I feel drained. The rest of the time, I depend on my own performance for my value too. Maybe you can relate. And so friends, for us to truly answer this question of why am I important, why am I valuable to God, we need a new model. One other than the model that the people in the story were using. One that's not built on our performance. And if we look back at our, at our text and we ask this question, we can see something about this. We see an amazing answer that Jesus tells of why was the coin valuable? Why was it valuable? Well, it, it certainly had some kind of intrinsic value to it, but it's more than that. It was valuable because of its relationship to its owner, because of its relationship. That's what made it valuable, and that's what makes us valuable too. See, your relationship to God as his creation is what makes you valuable to him. That's why. And one more question here on this. How do you know that? How do you know that, right? How do you know that you're valuable? As a good friend of mine once pointed out, you are one in a million, and still you're one in a million, right? Now, if you noticed in the story, the text, it brings that out. The woman has what? She's got 10 coins, right? One coin has gone missing. She has nine others. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. How do we know that the coin is valuable? How do I know that I'm valuable? Think of it this way. Have you ever lost a pen before? You ever lost a pen before? Sure, we all have, right? The most searching you did was a quick glance across your desk, right? And if you didn't find it, no big deal. Have you ever lost your car keys? You didn't leave a stone unturned to find those, right? And I bet when you found them, you know, you celebrated. You texted somebody. If the house was empty, you probably still said, got them, right? You know, you, you celebrated. This was a big deal. That's how you know. How do you know you're valuable to God? Because he came searching. And he didn't leave a stone unturned to find you. And when he found you, he celebrated. There wasn't this, you know, where have you been? There's just how happy he is to see us. 
There's a search and a celebration, neither of which were half-hearted. This is the insight into our question that we need. That we are more valued by God than we can imagine. Not because of our performance, but because of our relationship to him. And you can see that value in the way that he came searching for us and the way that he celebrates when he finds us. This is the good news of the gospel. The gospel is really our new model for determining value then. The good news that you are indeed valuable to God and he has made a search for you. That he sent his son Jesus to give his life that we could be found. It was a search in spite of our performance. We were lost without a clue, and yet he offered us something amazing. Tim Keller uh, said it this way, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You are more valuable to God than you can imagine. And for those who surrender, there is a celebration waiting. But as you're hearing this, let's think back to our question. Let's think back to our question. How can I be valuable to God as a kid, as an adult? Here's the answer. You already are. You already are. But you can display that value, and you do so when you value what God values. You display your value when you value what God values. Practically speaking, this is what brings us back to our starting point. If I know I am infinitely valued by God, it creates freedom for me to rewrite the way that I see what's valuable based on what God deems valuable. This is what the Pharisees and scribes didn't get, that Jesus was pointing out, that no one was performing up to his standard. That model wouldn't work, and he still values it. Neither group gets it, but he still loves them. And if they're found, they can begin to value what God values. And so for some of us in this room, we need to begin to reexamine what does it mean to make an impact or to leave a legacy or to be valuable or what we define as being more or less significant and rethink and begin rethinking in terms of the gospel and God's values. In the uh, book, I'm, uh, or I'm Perfect is the uh, uh, little catchphrase for the, for the title, but that he uh, hyphenates it to make it imperfect, a book that was written by Zach Eswine. He writes uh, about a story, an encounter, and a conversation that he had with a young pastor. He said this, I saw and heard myself in him. Maybe you will too. No matter what, I want to go all out for ministry, he said. His passion inspired me. But the context worried me. He had just spoken at length about his difficulty as a husband and a father, along with a reoccurring bend within the road of his soul. I took a breath and paused, staring down at the bowl of pad thai in front of me. If the ministry is what we will go all out for, I began, then how we define ministry seems important, you know? I took a bite and chewed. I just want to preach the word, he declared. No matter what happens, as long as I keep on saying what God said, 
He will bless it. I know he's given me purpose. There was urgency in his voice, hurry in his eyes. Both were like a mirror to me. I twirled peanut and noodle around my fork. I was hunting for words. Yes, God will bless his word, I ventured. Do you, have, you do have purpose, I affirmed. I lingered more with the bowl, trying to find what to leave unsaid. I spoke at a conference once, I began. I preached five times. It was one of those moments when God's presence was tangibly felt. In fact, after that particular conference, the rest of my year was planned full with preaching all over the country. God does bless his word. I've seen him do it firsthand. But, I said, and then stopped, stood at a crossroads in my mind, wondering how to say what was next. On my way home, after the last sermon, amid the divine blessing of that night, my wife of 15 years told me she was leaving me. There was quiet between my young friend and me. I sipped my Coke. I was afraid I had said too much. I'm trying to suggest, I said, that the ministry involves more than the question of whether our sermons are powerful and we influence crowds of people. Going all out for God means more than going all out for sermons and crowds. He was restless to do something great for God, and yet he did not know how to include changing diapers or holding his wife's hand in his definition of greatness. He finishes with this last quote. The point I'm now trying to make is this. Our desire for greatness in ministry isn't the problem. Our problem rises from how the haste of doing large things famously as fast as we can is reshaping our definition of what a great thing is. Desire greatness, but bend your definition of greatness to the one Jesus gives us. At a minimum, we must begin to take a stand on this one important fact. Obscurity and greatness are not opposites. powerful story. And it's applicable to any one of us. Any one of us. In our world, in our job, in our family, any one of us. Now I want to challenge you this week to spend some time writing an answer to a question that I believe will help us with this. To grow at valuing what God values. So here it is. Simply this. Who is someone that God values that you struggle to value and why? It could be someone's. Who is someone that God values that you struggle to value and why? Who is it? It could be lost people around you. It could be saved people around you. It could be people uh, that you think are ruining things. It could be people that you feel superior to. It could be someone or somewhere where you feel too significant to listen, to be around to eat with. It could be yourself. As we answer that question, it can really help to reveal our model for determining what's valuable. And when we think about why we struggle to value someone. And really some of uh, this is going to point to where we ourselves draw our value from. And whether or not we need to apply once again the truth of the gospel to that area of our, of our lives and to others. That we are loved in spite of our performance. 
We are unconditionally accepted because of Jesus' performance so that we have nothing left to fear from others in Christ and that we are a brand new creation, shame-free. As those truths begin to sink into our hearts, we can see in a fresh way that we are more valuable to God than we can imagine. And because of that, we can value what God values. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Lord, you may be doing some convicting work in us this morning. You may be doing some encouraging work in our hearts this morning. And Father, wherever we're at with that, Lord, we want you to come in and to clarify things. We pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would take your words of Scripture and work to sink them into our hearts. We pray that the message of hope from the gospel, that we are loved beyond our performance, would begin to sink in deeper and deeper. We pray for the people in our world that we struggle to love and to value. We pray that you would begin to work in our hearts to remind us afresh that you value them. Father, we know that that our value needs to come from you first and foremost. And so, Lord, we repent of the places and the times when we have misvalued things, that we valued them so much that they became idols in our life. We pray for the moments and for the people that we struggle to value. Lord, would you lead us in repentance, that we would grow in valuing you and valuing them based not upon their performance, but based upon your gospel. And we pray all these things in Christ's name.